All right, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you uh, for our time here this evening. You are the great God that has in your infinite wisdom decided to meet uh, with us, first of all through your Son, that we can fellowship with you, but also meet in a body like this, a church. And uh, we're thankful for that. And as we read uh, and look through this book here this evening, may we be reminded of uh, the privileges of being part of something that is yours, that is clearly something that is designed to bring you glory. Uh, And may we be individuals that play a role uh, in making you seen in the community that we live in and not a hindrance uh, to your glory being seen. So, Lord, we thank you for uh, the opportunity to know you better, and may we know you better as looking uh, at this letter to Timothy. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are in 1 Timothy here this evening, and um, we are making our way through. We've got uh, at least four books by Paul and possibly a fifth yet, Um, and uh, we will talk about that as we get there. But uh, 1 Timothy, okay, this is a letter, well, we've got the uniquely uh, weird, it's by Paul, but it is uniquely entitled, we have prison epistles, which Paul wrote while he was in prison, and this section is known as the pastoral epistles. In fact, if you get commentaries, they're oftentimes bundled together, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus. And they're usually entitled the pastoral epistles or something along that line. But they're unique because they're letters written to individuals. Uh, They're written to them and uh, they're involved in church work at different locations. Um, They're personal in nature, but have material that helps increase the understanding of Christ and the church. I do want to at least note this, and I find it interesting. Most of the time when Paul opens his letters and he talks to people, he usually says grace and peace to you. But in his his pastoral epistles, typically when he starts it off, he starts off with grace, mercy, and peace. And you go, well, why is that? Well, uh, if you've been in the ministry for any length of time, you realize that you are needing grace, mercy, and peace. You're needing mercy because there's a lot of mistakes that you make in pastoral ministry, and God's gracious enough to take your mistakes and use you. And so you find that introduction, it's kind of unique, instead of grace and peace, grace, mercy, and peace that start off these letters. Uh, it's personal in nature, but the teaching that you have here actually helps us to understand the whole thing. Okay, the, the, the church is not just merely a pastor. Okay, he's not the church. He's not the organization. He's a, a cog in the organization, uh, the body, part of the limbs uh, and the tendons and, and the ligaments and all of those things that go on. And so uh, you have to understand that though it is pastoral, it's written to pastors, it is uh, helping us to understand how the whole church functions time that this is written, the pastoral epistles were written uh, sometime after Paul's first imprisonment. So his time that he was in Caesarea for two years, he gets transported to Rome, he's there for about two years. This uh, letter and uh, 2 Timothy and Titus are written sometimes after that. Uh, the time period is not in the books of, uh, in the books, the book of Acts, uh, but after Acts 28. So it's somewhere after that. Acts 28 doesn't give all the work of the Apostle Paul. It stops because the message of Acts has gotten where it needs to be. That the gospel goes to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world, and the gospel's gotten to Rome, and all roads lead to Rome. The whole world can be reached uh, for that. Uh, So Acts 28 is kind of a stopping point. Paul's still in prison, but as far as going to be pieced together, Paul was released from prison, Returned to Asia, Ephesus and other cities there, and then went back across to uh, the Grecian Peninsula, areas of Macedonia. Uh, he left Timothy in Ephesus and uh, left him there to work with this church. Paul eventually made it to Crete, where Titus was a worker, 
and as far as we can tell, Paul made it eventually to Spain. That's, that's what we can guess by uh, some of the things that Paul writes in his letters and kind of hints at. That's the order that takes place. All this took place before the persecution of Christians across the Roman Empire. This took place after the summer of A.D. 64 when Rome burned to the ground. This is that statement, Rome, uh, Nero fiddled while Rome burned. Most think that if you study the history out that Nero wanted to rebuild Rome and he went to the Senate and they turned down his plans. So you make it so that it has to be rebuilt and um, it burned to the ground, and so there has to be a scapegoat. Nero can't be the one that's blamed, so he comes up with uh, fake news, and the fake news is that the Christians started this. And it's after AD 64 that uh, Christians start being hauled in by the Roman Empire. Before this, it had been local, you know, local governors and the like, and Paul did get heard by Caesar, but this was a regular court thing. It wasn't that Rome was going and looking for Christians. It was just a court case that he had. It's after this point, AD 64, that uh, the church is being chased after by the Roman Empire. So Paul got released in 61 AD. So there's no mention in 1 Timothy and Titus of any kind of persecution going on from the Roman government. 2 Timothy, when that's written, Paul's in prison when he writes it. And it's not his first imprisonment, it's his second imprisonment, and it's his last one. Because at the end of that, he notes the fact that he's ready to finish his course, he's fought the fight, he's kept the faith, he's done. He knows it's over with. So it's got to be written somewhere in 62, 64, about that time frame, just after Paul had been released. Uh, and uh, Paul killed somewhere in 67, 68, uh, they think, uh, as far as timing. So, Now, the reader, okay? You say, who's the reader? Timothy, and then everybody else gets to read Timothy's mail because it eventually becomes something the church reads. Uh, Timothy was a young man who had been raised in a mixed home. His mother's side was Jewish. His father was Greek. His mother's side, his grandmother and his mother taught him the Old Testament scriptures. And so when eventually an individual by the name of Paul comes through his town and nearly gets killed, probably did, uh, he's there with Timothy. And we think from the statements of the Apostle Paul that Paul had the opportunity to lead Timothy to the Lord. Because he makes statements like what you see um, in verse 2 of this uh, letter, unto Timothy, mine own son in the faith. Okay, it sounds like he had this, and there's other statements in the letters that seem to indicate the fact that Paul had the opportunity basically to be the father that led his, this son to Christ and be able to do that. Now, this is on his first missionary journey. Paul calls him the son of faith. He started traveling with Paul during the second missionary journey. You suddenly uh, have this story uh, in Acts chapter 16 where uh, Timothy goes through the whole process of being circumcised and, and being more acceptable to the Jews and this, and he suddenly starts traveling with the apostle Paul just before Paul gets to Philippi. You know, this is that time where Paul's trying to figure out what to do, and then they go to Philippi. And Timothy's with Paul pretty much all the time unless he's sent out and we'll talk about why Paul would send him out. Because at the bottom it says this, he's often with Paul, sent out, and Paul has mentioned in some of his letters, there is one that you will not find any more like-minded than I am. Paul didn't mind sending Timothy to situations because he knew that Timothy would think the same thing he did. That it's not that they're thinking opposite thoughts here. Now, that does not mean that Paul and Timothy were the exact same personality. Because you read this letter, and you find out that he seems to differ in personality of Paul because he seems to be timid, or we may say shy and retiring, uh, and his young age seemed to increase that feeling. Okay, 1 Timothy 4.12, that famous passage, let no man despise thy youth. But be thou an example of the believer. And uh, understand that that word when he says youth, 
okay? It's probably not that Timothy is a 15-year-old or a 20-year-old. Um, that word youth in the, the Greek can be for somebody that's 40 and under. So um, it uh, would have been young in the culture uh, in some ways, but Timothy seems to be one who is, by Paul's admonitions that you see, not one that, you know, he believed right, did right, knew what's right, but could be shy and timid at times, as opposed to Paul, who oftentimes showed up and was very bold and started fights and whatever. I mean, it just, you know, the personality was different. Timothy was very likable, kind, gentle, and Paul is sometimes saying, listen, let him have it you know, and uh, be an example and don't care what people think. So Timothy seems to have this type of thing going on. He seems to be the perfect complement to Paul in the ministry, uh, and uh, he would be sent out by him for this. Now, the letter is written as you have for two purposes, okay? The first is personal, okay? Uh, There's encouragement that goes on in the letter, Uh, challenges made in different areas. The second is the church. What you find in this letter is some of the, you know, more detailed instructions on church organization, uh, how the church functions. Uh, You get the details of it. It's not just generalities where it's kind of saying, you know, we're this church and we ought to function together as a church and whatever. Um, And this one, you're kind of seeing, okay, here's, here's some practical ways to have certain things happen. Not just general ideas, but this is the way things should go uh, in a church. And in this church, there seems to be, at Ephesus, those who seem to be Jewish Gnostics. Now, we have to remind ourselves that the Jewish Gnostics are. Gnostics are ones who thought they had knowledge above everybody else, that they had some sort of special revelation. That's that word Gnostic, knowledge. You get it there in the, the, the wording there. Uh, there's this idea that they have knowledge beyond other people about certain subjects, but they also mix in this Jewish type of thing that's going on there where there's an emphasis on uh, the law, as we will see, and certain things like that. And these teachers also seemed, and as you're going to find in this letter, seem to have a problem with covetousness. Now, there's a reason that they are covetous and why they think that you know, it's okay. Um, there'll be an explanation as you get to 1 Timothy 6. Now, he also teaches on how a church can be strong in its leadership and in its worship, okay? How do you, how do you cement a church where it's at, uh, and it is uh, that you do certain things a certain way, but you also have leadership that helps protect against false teachers, helps with that process, uh, and does that. And so there's going to be some instructions on that. So let's go through the, the letter here and uh, see what it works like. And right off from the start... Paul doesn't even uh, really break other than to say grace, mercy, and peace, and he immediately goes into the fact you need to deal with false teachers. And uh, these false teachers you see in verse number three, he says, I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some of them that they teach no other doctrine. Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, so do. Now, for you, you're going, what's this thing with fables and endless genealogies? What you had in a lot of Jewish circles, and if you were read their writings, um, you would, in the Old Testament, have huge sections that were genealogies and they're really boring. Because so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so. So you know what they would do? The Jews would make up stories about each one of those people in the genealogy. You know, so-and-so did this, and so-and-so did this, and, and they did this, and, and, you know, and so-and-so would come along and say, no, no, they were doing this. And you're going... They're only mentioned once in the genealogy. There's nothing about them other than that they bore a son, and that's it. But the Jews were fascinated with coming up with stories behind what was there in the text. This is why you would have endless strife. Because someone would say, no, 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 that's not what happened. This is what we think happened. 
and this person did this, and you'd have all of this go on. And so you would have much arguing in the Jewish community over the genealogies and the stories that were come up about this. And Paul says, don't waste your time with this. It does nothing to edify. It's not godly. It's not going to help anyone. So don't waste your time on stuff that isn't there. It's not in the text. It's fable that they've made up. But the other thing that these teachers are doing, besides spending time on what the Jews normally spend their time on, is that they are teaching that the law is necessary to be followed in order to be pleasing to God. What Apostle Paul says, verse 5, here's the end of the commandment. His charity out of a pure heart and a good conscience and a faith unfeigned. Okay, here's what you're supposed to do. Live out a life from a pure heart, a good conscience, faith unfeigned. Well, how do you get a good conscience? It's because you've got clearance with Christ. You've got clearing that's happened. But here some have, well, verse 6, have swerved, turning aside unto vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. They're talking about the law all the time and saying you must follow these things in order to be pleasing to God and going through all of this. And Paul goes, they're missing what the law is for. They, they're wasting their time trying to teach people, follow this and be pleasing to God. And Paul just goes, okay, let me explain. Verse 9, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and mothers and for mothers and for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men stealers, for liars, for perjured persons. And if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust, he's basically saying it's for people to recognize their sinfulness and to at least give something in society to at least give structure to keep this from happening. Now you read all those things, and what the Apostle Paul has just done is gone through most of the Ten Commandments there. You know, we would think, okay, what's the Fifth Commandment? It's honor thy father and mother. Well, what's going on here? You have people murdering their fathers and mothers. Okay, that, that would be, you know, going directly against the command of honor thy father and thy mother. But he goes through and he just simply says, the law was there to help people know they're disobedient that they're doing wrong, not to make people saved. And for Paul, it's this, that these individuals going through teaching different things, they taught the law could save a person. They missed that the law was not for salvation, but a hindrance to wrongdoers. And Paul then starts talking about this, and you read it in chapter one there, and time-wise, we're not going to cover this because we have, but he basically goes through and goes, I live my life that way. And it doesn't work. I finally met Christ, and what happened was this, verse 13, who, this individual, or verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer, persecutor, injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in my unbelief. And then he says this, here's a faithful saying, verse 15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And he's saying this about a person who was a law follower trying to please God and he just said, I was the chief of sinners until I met Christ and Christ changed everything for me. It's worthy of all acceptation uh, and this. And so he gives praise to God. This is why we've got uh, now unto the king, verse 17, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory and praise forever. Amen. He's simply saying, I can't believe the Lord took me, a murderer, blasphemer, and a law doer, and put me into the ministry. Let alone save me, but put me into the ministry. And so Paul charges this. False teachers had to be confronted. Paul challenged Timothy to deal with several people in particular who had shipwrecked their faith and were teaching others to do the same. These people were to be removed from the church and delivered unto Satan. 
This is what happens right at the end of this chapter. He just simply says, I charge you this way, I com- this charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before thee, that thou might be by them warst a good, or mightest war a good warfare, holding faith, a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck, of whom Hymenius and Alexander, whom I delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. He basically says, these two, okay, there are people that are doing this, but there's two people, and you know who they are, Hymenius and Alexander, you need to remove them from the church. That's what it means when you say, deliver one unto Satan. This is the terminology used in 1 Corinthians 5, where a person is removed from the protection of the church. Okay, there's protection in, being in, in, in a church, and what you do to a person like that, they go out and the devil's allowed to go after them, and they realize they're on a wrong course. That's part of it. They don't have the protection of feeling good about themselves uh, by being in church. They're no longer a part of that. And it's hopefully going to work repentance in them. But Paul goes, these two, you remove from church, you deliver them unto Satan, and let them suffer their consequences, and hopefully that will be something that will restore them. I mean, Paul's not saying, I hope they're destroyed. That's not what Paul's suggesting here, especially after looking at 1 Corinthians 5. So then Paul just kind of changes directions, okay? He's not going after false teachers. But what he does is this, is he says, okay, let's talk about how to keep your church orderly, okay? How to, how to get it organized in a fashion that doesn't cause confusion. And so one of the things that he starts with is what uh, the church is doing And as you see, as part of their worship services, it's this. He says in verse number one, I exhort therefore that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, for all that are in authority, that they may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there's one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom all to all to be testified, um, excuse me, to be testified in due time. And so he's basically saying, okay, here's what I want to, to, to happen. I want the men leading out in worship, and part of this is that you pray for all men. Okay, you go, what does that mean? Well, he's praying for all men, specifically kings, which is an amazing statement because think about the Apostle Paul who has just been released from four years of prison. And he's saying, pray for the king, pray for Caesar. You know, he's stayed in Caesar's household for four years, or two years. Um, But he's going, it's for a purpose, you're praying that you can live quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness, that you can live out your Christian life and there's not government interference. There's peace for you to be able to do this. That's one reason you pray, but you're also praying for all men. Why? Because God wants them to be saved. That is what God wants. Okay, prayers were made for all men, including the government. The desires of these prayers were to be able to live godly lives in all peace and to see all men saved because this was the heart of Christ. And so here you have uh, the men leading out in worship of the church. Okay, that's what he's saying. Okay, this is what should happen. And it's in contrast because the next part of the, the section is suddenly changing here. Verse 8, I would that therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without, uh, without wrath and without doubting, that they live a life of faith. But verse 9 in like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefastness and sobriety, uh, not with embroidered hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh uh, women professing godliness with good works. What he says is, okay, how are the women to conduct themselves in the church? And I'll just put it up here as a statement. The women of the church were to be known for their character and good works and not their looks. Okay. Now, there are some that take that passage and go, okay, this is a passage that says you're not supposed to wear earrings, and you're not supposed to wear uh, makeup, and you're not supposed to wear all these things. And I will say this. Does that mean that you're not supposed to wear garments, too? 
Okay? I don't think that's what Paul's suggesting, and he's not suggesting that you don't dress up. But what he's saying is, you shouldn't be known for your looks, you should be known for your good works. That's what you should be known for. Uh, the idea of shamefacedness is uh, what we would use, that would be that shamefacedness, that term is the word we would normally use for modest. Okay? The, the word that's actually modest in our text is the idea of orderly apparel, okay? organized in that. Uh, uh, but the shamefacedness is more of what we would use the term commonly in our generation of saying, be modest in your dress uh, and the like. But that's the case. Uh, in the structure of the church, they were not to be in positions of authority over the men. You get through this, and it says, uh, verse 12, but I suffer not a woman to teach nor usurp the authority of the man, but be in silence. Okay, that doesn't mean the woman is, you know, doesn't have an opinion, can't say anything, do these type of things, but what it's saying is this, is that they're not teaching. They're not in a teaching position over uh, men, and in the case and you say, well, why this is the case? Well, uh, you go back to Genesis and you find out, verse 13, that Adam was form, first formed, then Eve. So in the order of that, there seems to be some leadership the men have. And then Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Uh, we read this, that Eve was deceived by Satan. And when Eve comes to the fruit to Adam, he's just like, okay, he knows what he's doing. He wasn't deceived. He's just out and out rebellious. But uh, he takes the lead in this. He should have said, no, don't do that. Or you shouldn't have done that. But whatever the case is, he uses this theological basis to say, okay, man was first in the, 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 the creation order, and then he wasn't the one who was deceived, and so let's just have it in this order. Uh, this does not mean that women don't have impact in the church. They do. Do they have impact in their homes? Yes, there's a lot of things that don't go on in a church if it's not for uh, the women being a part of this, and there wouldn't be the going forth of the name of Christ if the women weren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. Not just men that get to proclaim his name. They get to, uh, they are not the only ones. You think about this, women proclaim the name of Christ to all sorts of people. But in the teaching environment, the leadership environment, it ought to be men. And you go, okay, so what does Paul do at that point? Well, he suddenly goes to, verse 3, standards for church leadership. And he goes in verse three, or chapter 3 and verse 1. He starts with this and says, this is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. And it says, verse 2, a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. And you go through this, and I'm just saying, you start off with that, and you just kind of go, okay, it says he's husband of one wife, and it's a he that's here. These are not positions of leadership for women. And in the controversy that we have in today's generation, people want to just simply go, well, you know what? Paul was an ancient guy. And you're kind of going, no, Paul's dealing with a theological standard of Genesis where man was put into leadership and the like. And so what you have in the church is you have these different positions that are official leadership positions. Okay, Are there a lot of leadership positions in the church that you know, ladies have taken responsibility for? And the answer is yes. But when it comes to these two positions, these are filled by men. The first one being the pastor. And you say, what's the standard? Well, that he is blameless. And you go, what does it mean that the pastor is blameless? Is this that he never, ever, 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 ever sins? The answer is no. What you have as far as the standards there, and I'm not going to take all the time to go through this, but what you have in the standards here, what you have is that blameless has the idea of not being able to be grabbed onto. So it's this way that there's not major character issues that the community at large can grab onto that bring dishonor to the name of Christ. Okay, that's a one, he's a one-woman man. He's a person who is uh, one who's got his children uh, living in subjection in the sense that as they're in the home, they're doing what they should be doing in that home. Uh, these things so that he is not bringing the gospel into blame. They, people can't go, well, look, this one who's leading them out, he's got this going on. 
But realize, as you talk about this first leadership position, it's the title bishop, pastor, elder. As you read through uh, your, your New Testament, you'll find them titled different ways. This word bishop is, understand that it's not that, you know, he's wearing this fancy robe and he's got, you know, this perhaps a funny hat on and that type of thing. That's not what we're, uh, that term meant. It just simply means being an overseer. That's what the word means, to see over, to look over. Um, pastor and elder, but uh, the fact is, is that this is one who is not perfect, but not one where the community can go, really? That's the one who's leading you out? But you have the secondary thing here. You get uh, to verse uh, number 8, and you have a second position known as deacon. And realize this, that that word deacon, as people would read that, it's the word diakonos, which there's a word for that, diakoneo. That's the verb of that. You go, what does it mean? Serve. It's oftentimes translated in our Bible, serve or minister. And so when you talk about a deacon, here you've got an individual that by their title, though it's a leadership position, it's one of service. It's not to say that the pastor's not a servant either, but this is what they're doing. They're serving needs in the church. Uh, as you read through the list, the deacon uh, has a lot of the same characteristics and is, you read through it, one who's got kind of the blameless character as you look at verse number 10, this one who uses the office of a deacon being found blameless, okay? He's got the same thing. He shouldn't have things that people in the community or the church can grab onto and go, well, that's a, just a horrible character flaw. You've got this person leading out. Uh, they shouldn't be. And so what Paul's saying is, I'm talking about false teachers. You don't want false teachers there. And for your leadership, you want to have leadership that you're not being able to just kind of grab onto character and people are just going, that is, you know, the community is seeing this and going, that is not someone we want to lead out our groups and the like. So Paul says, okay, you got false teachers. You have the standard men leading out, women following. Then here's these positions of leadership and the requirements that are required for them. And so Paul then gives challenges for the pastor. You go, what's, who's the pastor? Timothy. Here, here's some things that need to be going on. Paul reminds uh, Timothy in uh, verse number 14 after this whole section, these things I write unto you hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the nations, or Gentiles you see there, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. And he says, okay, you know, ought to know how you ought to behave in the church, and here's what you're doing. The church is hopefully lifting up Christ so that he's seen. That's why you want your leadership to be uh, right kind of leadership, because you want Christ to be seen. Not the leadership, not those individuals, but then when all is said and done, Christ is clearly seen, and that the church is holding up on like a top of a pillar or a stand, is holding up truth for everyone to be able to see this. So, Timothy, I'm writing this. I hope to get there soon, but I just want to remind you things. This is what you want your church to be doing and how you want it to look. And so for Paul, he tells him he's going to come. Church is the pillar ground of the church. The church is to hold up the truth. But what you find then in chapter 4 is Timothy is reminded of the fact that there are individuals that are in a position like what he has, but aren't living like they should be. You have uh, Paul mentioning, now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits, doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to merit, commanding to abstain from meats, which abstaining from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. And so what he says is this, as you get to the end times, 
you're going to find individuals that are going to be in the positions of preaching that are suddenly going to preach doctrines that have nothing to do with the Scripture, and they're going to forbid certain things and commend certain things that should never be commended and should never be done, and they're going to do this. And do you realize that even though there are buildings and churches out there, you can walk into them and there are people who are pastoral role, pastors or whatever you might call them, that are preaching things that are in direct contrast to the Word of God. And it seems to be getting worse and worse. We have a lot of churches that are doing that. They're not preaching what God says. And he's just warning, Timothy, this could happen. And so be on warning that in these end times, this type of thing can happen. They're going to defect from the faith. They're going to go away from the faith. They would teach errant doctrine and live in ways not in line with the Scripture. You know, we're, we're going to get the televangelist part in chapter six, or verse 6, even though the television hadn't been invented yet, but you're going to have people who are preaching merely for gain. And that's why they're preaching. But what you see then is this. The good minister would be one who displayed the results of feeding upon good doctrine. He was to exemplify spiritual maturity. In verse 7, but refuse profane and old wives' fables. Exercise thyself rather unto godliness, for bodily exercise profiteth little. Okay? You realize that exercising you're doing doesn't last the effects of it very long. It's not saying Paul is saying don't exercise. Uh, he's just simply saying the effects of it don't have long-term effect. But if you're exercising yourself in godly things, in the things of God, the things that you're exercising yourself in over and over again are going to have eternal effect. And so verse number 12, Paul just simply says, let no man despise thy youth. Don't let anybody look down their nose at you because you're, you're younger. But be thou an example of the believers in word and conversation, that's manner of life, in charity and spirit and faith and purity, till I come, give attendance to the reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by the prophecy and the laying hand in the hands of the presbytery. Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may be appeared to all. Take heed unto thyself and thy doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. He's just simply saying, get in the doctrine, and you preach it, and you teach it, and you live it out, and this is what you do with your life. And the benefits of this will be long-term if you're willing to give yourself to studying things that are godly. And as you look through there, Paul gives at least 10 commands to Timothy about how he was to act in contrast to these teachers. You just can go through and read through it. And you just, there's command after command, command. You need to do this, 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 and this. And it's a whole bunch of, you know, just machine gun type of uh, things that are going on there, one after the other, which any of them, just thinking about it long periods of time, there's a lot there. But Paul's just throwing that out here. You live your life, have eternal impact, live your way this way, live your life and preach this way. So then you get to chapter 5 to chapter, beginning of chapter 6, where you have this section on what we're going to say relationships in the church. And when Paul starts off in chapter 5 and verse 1, he says this, "'Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father.'" and the younger men as brethren, and the elder women as mothers, and the younger as sisters with all purity. So what he's saying here is this, is that you have a church and it's filled with older people. How you ought to treat the older people is how you would treat your father. Those that are of the same age, it's not that you're viewing each other as some other family. No, you treat them as you would your brother or your sister. Now, sometimes we have bad examples of that, how we treat our brother or sister, but what you're doing is this, is that you treat them as family. Your relationships are like a family. You can trust family, typically. And he's just simply stating it ought to be that the church is a family. It has that kind of feeling. 
that there's respect and honor given to those that are older, but yet even then, those that are older aren't simply looking down their noses at this. They are viewing, in some cases, these individuals as brothers and sisters. Okay, this family relationship that ought to be going on. And so Paul says, this is how it ought to be. It ought to be a family. In this family, you have certain individuals that are in need, and you have the lengthiest section in the Scripture on how to deal with the widows. Okay, in Acts chapter 6, you have a problem with the widows there in the church of Jerusalem, and the deacons take care of it. And you're not really even told how they exactly take care of it. But what you have in this church, obviously some situations with the widows that are there, And so what he says is this, widows who were truly widows were to be cared for by the church. The younger widows were to be blameless and consider remarriage. And you say, what were were younger widows? Under 60. Wow, okay. Um, But that's what the, the standard was. But when it comes to the care of widows, the older widows, as Paul goes through, ought to be cared for by family and the church. This is what should happen. In fact, Paul uses some very strong terms about individuals who don't take care of their family. Uh, Verse 8, but if any provide not for his own, especially for those of his own household, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. You kind of go, what's an infidel? An unbeliever. Even unbelievers take care of widows in their family. So in this, the older worlds we cared for and this, and so it's part of the church taking care of its own. Sometimes there's family responsibilities that we take up. It's the way it is. Now elders, uh, in this case it's talking about spiritual leaders, were to be taken care of financially. You have the section there in uh, verse number... 17, let the elders which rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in word and doctrine. Um, yeah, we get, uh, as pastors, get compared to oxen, cows. Yeah, Scripture says, thou shalt not muzzle, out the, muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn. Yeah, but uh, you have this. But he also says, okay, when it comes to the elders, sometimes you have accusations that's brought to them, against them. He goes through this process. Okay, what would you expect in any situation? You would expect that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, the accusation would be brought with caution. But there are sometimes legitimate things that go on that, okay, the elder needs to be confronted on this. And so what do you do? You, you just don't merely take wild accusations. You do the same process that you would hope you would do with church members. Okay, the whole process of, okay, you confront the person. If it doesn't change, you take another person with. You take two or three witnesses, and then if that won't be heard and the person continues in sin, then you take them before the church. And hopefully, at that point, the person realizes, I'm going a direction I really shouldn't be going. Okay, same way. It ought to be the same way for uh, the pastor. And so elders were to be chosen for the church after serious investigation. You look at the end of the chapter, and it's just simply talking about how the church chooses their leaders, treats their leaders, uh, and uh, also at times removes their leaders and uh, goes through that. And then you get to verses 1 and 2, slaves to honor unsaved masters. They were to serve as a testimony to Christ. Uh, Realize this, that slaves were part of a family. Well, they're property. Yeah, well, they're part of a family. And so Paul says, how do you act if you have an unsaved master? You honor them. And you as slaves that know Christ, teach others how to treat their masters as a Christian would. And you end with that. Uh, Family relations, and so in the church you have this. But then in verses 3 through 17, this is a section that's oft quoted, and we oftentimes forget and miss what the context is. Why does Paul suddenly start talking about money and wealth and all of this? Well, look at verse number 3. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strife of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men, 
of corrupt minds, destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. From such, withdraw thyself. So here are these teachers that are not teaching according to Christ are thinking this, hey, I've got all sorts of money. It must be God's blessing me. And what Paul says is, listen, first of all, as a pastor, realize this, you're not in it. And he's already made this challenge in 1 Timothy 3 where he's saying, here's the the, um, qualifications of a pastor. They're not wanting filthy lucre. You know, they're not going after money, ill gain. Uh, they're not living their life this way. But you do have some who go into the ministry to make money, which is amazing. But there are people that think, okay, I can make money off of fleecing people. And the more money I get, it just proves the fact that I'm wise in what I'm doing, and God's going, that's fine. You know, if I ever own a $5 million dollar uh, jet, okay, there's a problem. Or a $164,000 doghouse, there's a problem. Okay, and you have scandals like this all the time, and it's become very well known in the televangelist movement uh, that you have this going on. It's not that everyone on television is doing this, but you have a lot of people who are making a lot of money off of people, and they're just saying, well, God's obviously blessing. What Paul says is don't take up that mindset. Verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world. It's certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us therewith or be therewith content. If you have housing and food, be thankful. You're taken care of, you've got everything you need, and you're not taking any of the stuff with you. So enjoy what you have right now that God's given to you, and just enjoy it. And then he gets into a passage that we oftentimes use when it comes to people in general. Verse 9, but they that will be rich, okay? Understand what that word rich, that the word will is there, okay? They're wishing This is their determination, their hope. I I want to be rich. Okay, here's what happens to them. They fall into temptation and snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. People will do a lot of foolish stuff in order to gain stuff. They'll give up their family, they'll give up their own soul if they can just have money. What shall it profit a man and gain the whole world but lose his own soul? There's a lot of people living their life that way. Verse 10, and I think we understand this, it's not the money is the root of all evil, but the love of money, the pursuit of it is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through many sorrows. He's saying this, there are false teachers here that have given up saying what should be said, sometimes offending people because this is what the scripture says. They're not willing to do that. They're making people comfortable and they're like, okay, and they're making money off of people who feel comfortable. He says there's a lot of people who have through, the preachers that have pierced themselves through with sorrows because they haven't been willing to preach what they should have for the sake of a buck. The love of money. And so here you have, uh, Timothy considered, some of the surrounding him considered that the display of their wealth, the size of their wealth, was a blessing. The love or pursuit of money would cause individuals to reason and do things that would ultimately drown and destroy them. And I don't think that Timothy had a problem with this, but the challenge is still there. You could get this mindset as you look at others which are riches in their lands and gold. And perhaps waver. You ever read Psalm 73? Here he is fretting at the wicked with all their riches and their good health, and he said, I almost slipped. Okay, it happens. You look at this life and say, I can't believe this is going on for those people. Uh, Maybe I'm doing things that are wrong. I'm willing to change my ways to make a buck. So what does Paul do? 
Look at what it says right after all of this. Verse 11, but thou, O man of God, flee these things. Follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life whereunto thou art called and have professed a good profession before many witnesses. He's just simply saying, remember, you're not living for this life. This is the final stopping point. And so for Paul, the true man of God, was to pursue a godly life, flee greed, fight for the faith, serve until Jesus returned. This kind of life was ministry to God. This is what God wanted. But you see in the end, verse number 17, there's a last charge to the wealthy. Okay? So someone say, well, money and having it is bad, so you need to give up all your money. You know what Paul says? It's not what I'm saying. Look at verse number 17. It says this, Charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. (gasps) He does give us things to enjoy in this life. You know, you're thinking after, you know, love of money, root of all evil, you know, just to be happy that you got bread on your table and nothing else, you know, but he says, okay, God does bless us with good things. These rich, the wealthy, that these are ones that they ought to do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate. The idea willing to communicate is willing to distribute. Laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. He just simply says, think about this, that wealth is not a bad thing, God is the one who gives gifts. The wealthy need to trust in God. Their wealth is a, okay, is a stewardship. They're given responsibility. It's not theirs. That's what a steward is. A steward was working for stuff that wasn't necessarily his stuff, but had responsibility over it. And he's just simply saying, well, you've been given this. Use it wisely in the light of eternity. Use your wealth realizing you're not going to take it with you either, and you use it in such a way as, well, to promote eternity. To do good for eternity. And so wealth's not a bad thing, it's just how do you use it? Is it with eternity's values in view? Those type of things. And so the closing is this, Paul closed and it's kind of an abrupt ending because normally he has all sorts of things you read the end of his letter and all sorts of closings and people greeting you. It's just very, it's done. Okay, it goes, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and opposition science so falsely called, which some professing have erred from the faith. Grace be with thee, amen. So it's the final closing thing. I opened up with this. You know, don't fall into false teaching. Don't let it continue. And grace be to you. You need all the help that you can get. Amen. And so he closes the letter. So this is a letter that personal in nature, but there's a lot on how the church is to function. And a lot of things that you look at and go, okay, this is our basis for understanding some of these things and the like being a part of that. So great uh, book for that. A lot of uh, passages familiar, but uh, we will uh, continue on. Second Timothy here, even though Titus comes first, we'll go with Second Timothy next uh, as we come back to this. Lord, we thank you. You're a great God. You've given us all that we need because you've given us your son. And so, Lord, may we live as individuals uh, for godliness, not for the things of this life, And may we uh, be ones who would be exercised and sturdy in the faith, that we're solid in the things that we know, and that we would live our life looking to eternity, not at uh, the things around us that might cause us to be bitter or selfish or self-destructive. So Lord, we love you. Thank you for giving us Christ, the hope of eternal salvation. And we thank you and praise you, the immortal and invisible God. We thank you. Amen.